the professional, the professional managerial class, which is, I mean, like, honestly, like a couple of weeks ago, even, and this has been forming for like six months, honestly, like the conversations about this has been forming for months. I mean, Elton has been doing his own independent sort of presentations and discussions revolving around various readings, some of which will be a part of this course, some of which uh, Anne and I were present for in Boise, Idaho, where the Dead Parrots Philosophical Society meets, and which is where, um, where we used to live, Anne and I. Now, we are in Aguascalientes, Mexico, where we will be for the next five months. And uh, what I was going to say, though, is that as this formed over the last six months, it genuinely did not seem to me to be the most controversial topic. I, I know that it in the past, over the years, people who are running into the concept of the PMC for the first time, it can be a little like take people for a loop. People who are traditionally uh, either predisposed towards being very self-reflexive -ref and aware, um, or people who've been trained to be because that's all the rage these days. Kind of have to if you want to be woke um, can be put off when they realize that there is another thing to be aware about that calls into question how they may have been doing advocacy, activism, et cetera, for the last, well, all of their lives. And that is what the PMC does um, when you start to think about it as a as an addition to uh, an expansion pack on uh, the traditional class framework. So basically, it's a way of thinking about the middle class that adds some complexity because the middle class is traditionally in theory circles thought of as the petty bourgeoisie or the petite bourgeoisie, uh, which is to say the small time capitalist. Small time capitalists are, you know, mom pop stores, but could also potentially include people like landlords, people who get into real estate, and would technically include someone like my father, who spent obviously like 20 years as an entry level wage earner who worked in a variety of fields and then eventually landed doing appliance repair. Uh, which he then did for like 20 years himself. And that means you go into other people's houses and have to deal with all of their weird idiosyncrasies and do a lot of backbreaking labor, crawling underneath people's appliances or hauling their appliances in or out of houses and replacing, you know, replacing parts after you've diagnosed the issue. And diagnosing the issue can be, uh, you know, is the hardest part outside of dealing with usually middle class you know, housewives or their, or their jealous husbands. And, uh, you know, my dad's, uh, my dad always said that the reason he had the dad bod and had to maintain his belly was so that the husbands didn't get too jealous when he went into their, their houses when they were not home, but their wives were, you know. 
What's my point? The point is that, yes, my dad is technically petty bourgeois in the sense that he has to worry about profit. That means that if he is not maintaining his means of production, his van, his tools, the software updates on various things, having to go to the conference every once in a while to learn some new tech info or whatever, um, without doing these things, he would go out of business. And so there, there are costs. And then obviously he's got to bring in more than the costs of the business so as to fund, um, well, his own sustenance and hopefully, you know, get stuff like clothes on the back of his children, right? Which in our case was always from a thrift store. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity in the foods that we ate. And maybe that's somewhat normal for people who have stay-at-home mothers who are also trying to do a side hustle of a business from home. Um, you know, the, it, you, you're going to be eating a lot of ramen and oatmeal and no takeout, never. McDonald's was a treat, right? Like a once in a year kind of a treat. Um, and so in my understanding, like I grew up poor, but after I had long, long after I had moved out of my parents' house, um, they got a little bit more established. And in a sort of sense, they see themselves as people who have worked their butts off and bootstrap themselves into, into the middle class. I just admitted another person into the chat. Welcome, keep your camera off for the time being. There'll be a couple of lectures. I'm just doing the intro talk here before we hand it over to Elton. And then after him, I'll be giving the talk and then there'll be a discussion. Um, but welcome, Sabine. So what am I saying? I'm saying that, yes, I think my dad is in the that standard sense, petty bourgeois. And there is definitely someone, someone please uh, mute your microphone. I don't know who that is, but I can hear stuff in the background. So considering the entire middle-class petty bourgeois becomes problematic though, when we are thinking about class today, really class in the last hundred years, things have changed dramatically and uh, a lot of the middle class is made up of what we would call the professional managerial class. One of the things that we will be doing throughout this course is developing our understanding as to why the petty bourgeoisie and the PMC have fundamentally opposed interests in some cases, as well as um, objectively um, antagonistic relations um, that are different, that is to the other classes that they are situated around. And obviously there can be a lot of overlap and you can have petty bourgeois people who generally speaking operate in a PMC mode and vice versa. And there's all kinds of ways that humans are a lot more complicated than these categories. But the reason that I think that it's so important though is because today the democratic party as well as every leftist or radical space is primarily uh, dominated by uh, the professional managerial class. And that has been the case since college students became the core constituency or recruitment site for uh, political organizations, nonprofit organizations, et cetera. And so Elton and I have had a variety of conversations about this over, over time. I think our positions have changed somewhat. I think we're still fleshing out our positions. Um, so 
we don't always agree on everything. And I don't even know how we may agree or disagree right now. Um, but for me, I've got a lot of different questions and struggles or concerns that I'm working through. And in a sense, the deeper I've gone down this rabbit hole and the more obstacles I've found to having good conversations with uh, leftists and radical professors in my life or other activists or advocates in my life, the more I've had a hard time having conversations about these issues, the more it's been like, well, I would like to move on to other theory in a sort of sense. There's other things I'd like to be focusing on, but I, I feel like there's things that have to be figured out when it comes to this one. And to date, there's not a class you can take online about this topic. And there's not a forum online where you can go, where you can presume that the other people in that conversation have a basis in some shared texts. So Theory Underground, being a brand new organization, seeks to set that right. And I thought it made a lot of sense to put that front and center, not only because it's something that we've been thinking and talking about, but also because, look, if we're going to be attracting some people who are into Marxism in the future because we're going to be reading Das Kapital, well, I want them to see that this is something we've talked about and it's something that they can take after the fact. And so to the people who are going to be taking that course in the future, but are taking this as a sort of prerequisite for that, welcome. Anyway, all right. I have a whole lecture. I'll get into it later. For now, I would like to welcome Elton LK, the host of the Working Class Intelligentsia podcast and the, an organizer for the Democratic Socialists of America, as well as a philosophy club organizer. So welcome, Elton. Thank you. So that was, yeah, out, outstanding. I, I do think it'll be interesting, you know, even like, as you said, we've, of course, talked about stuff for some time, but just to see where we can, you know, um, define kind of like where each of us um, have changed over time and where, where we're at now and may or may not agree on different things. I know for myself, um, you know, part of why this is interesting is, you know, as a member of uh, Democratic Socialists of America, I just think that we need to understand class and be, you know, be able to to develop strategy there. But I, you know, have to admit, I also, um, as someone who, you know, is, you know, has to self-identify as PMC, um, I need to be able to understand it, even just be able to like talk to my peers <laughs> on some level and and be able to, you know, um, have constructive conversations about politics and, and what I think, that kind of stuff. So um, moving on though to the lecture itself, so I've got a couple books, more than a couple books here. Um, you know, the, the main thing that I'm going to be talking about here is this uh, Barbara Ehrenreich book, Fear of Falling. So there's a short passage that is um, assigned as far as the course um, is concerned, if, if you want to read along, that is. And it's just something like 10 pages or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But I, I want to just dive in to uh, an original source text that 
Barbara Ehrenreich references. Uh, I figured um, by getting into this text uh, here, which is the principles of scientific management, which I don't know if you can read, it's probably too hard. Um, Frederick Winslow Taylor, I think I paid $5 for this on um, Amazon, just because it's one of those kind of like texts that nobody bothers to read these days, but so they did a cheap um, printing of it for $5. And it's gold when you want to study the PMC, uh, because this is, you know, one of the foundational texts. I'll get to that in a moment, but um, I just wanted to get started by reading a little bit of what uh, Taylor says about um, what he's calling scientific management. And I'll, um, you know, I'll discuss a little bit about kind of like why I'm talking about it. And then we'll jump over to Barbara Ehrenreich and um, talk through a little bit of the text there. And I, but I think that this will uh, provide a lot of insight into what Aaron Reich's talking about. Oh, one, All right, so, yeah, go ahead. One interjection as a point of order because Sabine actually just joined the course. I just actually like, um, Sabine must have just registered like right as we were starting. Brilliant. Um, so first of all, welcome. And uh, this is something people are able to sign up for after the fact. So it's never too late. Um, nothing is due. Nobody is late. No one fucked up. So don't worry about <laughs> anything like that. The syllabus was posted today in the forum. It's got most of the links that are active uh, for most of the excerpts. Um, and as far as the syllabus goes, we can talk a little bit more about it later. I just, I want to put this up front though, I realized because I don't want people stressing about it. But just so you know, if you want to do the reflections by the due date, which is only optional, it's just something you can do, you don't have to, then it's always going to be due the Wednesday after the lectures. So that should take some stress off. All right. And then as far as turning it back over to you, what is uh, Taylor's first name? Frederick Winslow Taylor. Frederick yeah. Winslow Taylor. And I was just going to say, uh, this isn't like you're pulling a random name out of a pile or some random book off of a shelf. This is, I mean, he is referenced by, I mean, every Marxist I've ever read, he's referenced yeah. by Lenin, he's, 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 uh, he, but he's also uh, an essential reading for business degrees. So yeah, this guy changed the game in a lot of ways. Well, I I should say my own occupation is is a you know profession founded on this text right here. So, um, you know I I do process improvement, for example, and uh, at that you know at that point, um, Taylor you know coined the term scientific management, uh, which I think is a little bit deceptive because it makes it sound like the focus is on management, but I actually think the focus is on um, essentially process improvement. It's management that has to enforce the process improvement, but um, it's fundamentally about processes. And when we're saying processes, what you mean is like who's doing what and how they're doing it and yeah. how can we re-rationalize the workplace to make it more effective and hopefully get rid of some of the employees who aren't yeah. meeting standards. Okay. 
Yeah, so it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone in the comments said Taylorism. That's that's what we're talking about here, uh, Taylorism. And uh, yeah, processes, you know, usually this is, you know, in the context of factories um, is, is that, you know, like like I've got another book here that I'll reference in a moment called The Toyota Way. I guess it's kind of hard to see. Um, you know, Toyota has a assembly line and the question is, is how do they design that assembly line in such a way that they not only, you know, like um, are efficient, uh, but they create, you know, they build the cars quickly, have high quality in the process, all of those kinds of things. So I'll just read um, a couple short passages and uh, comment them on the way. So first of all, chapter one, so this is the beginning of the book, I, I thought uh, this was worth reading. So the principal object of management should be to secure the maximum prosperity for the employer, coupled with the maximum prosperity for each employee. The words, the words maximum prosperity are used in their broad sense to mean not only large dividends for the company or owner, but the development of every branch of the, of the business. I just heard myself for a second there. We good? Yeah. I think it was a feedback issue. We're good. Okay. Um, but the development of every branch of the business to its highest state of excellence so that the prosperity may be permanent. So, you know, right from the beginning, this book is about bridging the divide between the capitalists and the employees, the workers. So that'll come up when we talk about Ehrenreich because she talks about um, class, um, essentially overcoming class conflict is like the primary function of the PMC. So we'll get to that in a bit. So in the opening of this book here, he talks a lot about how the workers kind of run the factory because they have special knowledge about their skill set. You know, if it's if it's a you know building a car, eventually, you know, um, after you've worked in the industry for a decade or more, then you have a certain skill set that probably the capitalist doesn't have because they've always been the capitalist. But you, as the worker working with your hands, you know, have developed a skill that then, um, you know, gives you the worker some level of leverage over the workplace because you can tell the boss, you know, that it takes 60 hours to achieve a certain task. And they, you know, they may think that you're lying, but what are they going to do? especially as you have a whole workplace, a whole factory, um, and even a, you know, a union or a, a trade that essentially sets certain expectations about it, taking 60 hours, you know, per car, or I'm just coming up with random things. But the, but the point is, is that, um, that, that Taylor is aware that a lot of workers are, intentionally working slow so as to not 
um, you know, wear the workers out. You know, the it's the it's the workers' bodies that are you know sacrificed when they work too hard, um, wearing out at a you know um, at a quicker pace. Meaning, like you know, at age forty, coal miners um, getting you know all kinds of um, pain and you know even their bodies breaking down because they've been working too hard that kind of stuff so uh at turn of the century a lot of unions were famous for and I, and I know there was a term for it um but essentially like setting the pace intentionally to be slow or well taylor as a engineer um knew that something you know wasn't right there and he wanted to um essentially engineer a way for workers to uh, maximize productivity, but also um, for them to be compensated accordingly. He wanted to create a relationship where um, the capitalists could be on good terms with the workers and that you know both workers and capitalists could benefit by this. So and I'm gonna jump ahead. And feel free to interrupt me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say that this was published in 1910? Oh, yeah. Thanks for uh, capturing that. Yeah. This is uh, 1911. Okay. And I only bring that up because as far as like the who cares, right? The who cares here is because um, this is after decades of the absolute pinnacle of working class struggle and antagonism, right? Yeah. This is this is still, I think, uh, kind of the the second international wor working men's association, and uh, the rise of the third international. Like there, this is a big moment, and Americans are looking across the pond, and they're like, "We don't like this." And then they're looking over at Eugene Debs, and they're like, "We don't like this." And so, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, probably the wrong metaphor, but yeah, we're still in the Wild West as far as regulation goes for safety in the factory, in the workplace, all of that kind of stuff. And um, and the, the labor movement, especially in, in Europe, um, is getting very militant um, by this point. Uh, but even even in the United States, um, it's starting to get, um, you know, like you mentioned, Eugene Debs. Um, I think it was wasn't even uh, nineteen twelve was when he was at the height, or nineteen ten, something like that. Was like essentially when a socialist got, you know, sixteen percent of the vote for president, or something like that. Mm. So uh, definitely, this is a high point for um, the labor movement in the United States. Okay, so um, this paper will show that the underlying philosophy of all of the old systems of management in common use makes it imperative that each workman should be left with the final responsibility for doing his job practically as he thinks best, with comparatively little help and advice from the management which is to say that the workers had, you know, a little bit of uh, leverage and autonomy. With, um, and it will 
also show that because of this isolation of workmen, it is in most cases impossible for the men working under these systems to do their work in accordance with the rules and laws of science or art, even where one exists. Uh, we can talk about that uh, in a little bit. But now, so he always refers to himself as, as the writer, which is also kind of humorous. But uh, so Taylor says, the writer asserts as a general principle, and he proposes to give illustrations tending to prove the fact later in this paper, that in almost all of the mechanic arts, the science which underlies each workman is so great and amounts to so much that the workman who is best suited to actually doing the work is incapable of fully understanding this science. Without the guidance and help of those who are working with him or over him, either through lack of education or insufficient mental capacity. So he's saying workers, they do the work, but they don't see the big picture, whether that's just because they don't see the big picture, they haven't been educated, or maybe they're not even that smart. In order that the work may be done in accordance with scientific laws, now, obviously, he said scientific uh, at least three, three times already. Um, it is necessary that there shall be a far more equal division of the responsibility between management and the workmen than exists under any of the ordinary types of management. Those in the management whose duty it is to develop this science should also guide and help the workmen in working under it and should assume a much larger share of the responsibility for results than under usual conditions is assumed by the management. And I'll explain this more in a sec, but the body of this paper will make it clear that to work according to scientific laws, the management must take over and perform much of the work which is now left to the men. Almost every act of the workmen should be preceded by one or more preparatory acts of the management which enable him to do his work better and quicker than he otherwise could. And each man should delay, uh, sorry, should daily be taught by and receive the most friendly help from those who are over him, instead of being at the one extreme driven or coerced by his bosses or at the other left to his own unaided devices. This close, intimate, personal cooperation between the management and the men is of the essence of modern scientific or task management. So all of that to say that he wants class harmony between the capitalists, the managers, and the workers. It's just a matter of the division of labor, essentially um, taking the physical labor and giving that, you know, keeping that in the hands of the workers and the planning and putting that into the hand of the management. Okay, and then I had, let me find one more piece. Um, so, um, you know, he talks about quite a few different things um, that clearly sounds like paternalism. Um, yeah, okay, that division of labor, okay. Uh, 
An almost equal division of the responsibility between the management and the workmen requires further explanation. The philosophy of the management of initiative and incentive, um, which is the old way of doing things, and essentially just paying somebody more to, to work harder, makes it necessary for each worker to bear upon the entire responsibility for the general plan, as well as for each detail of his work. And in many cases, it, um, for his implements as well. In addition to this, he must do all of the actual physical labor. Actually, I'm going to just um, summarize this rather than reading more. But the, the important point is that he's really emphasizing that the um, manager basically is the smart person in this transaction and um, is there to help the worker by planning out every movement and every, you know, and every um, thing that he does so that he does it in the, I think he even has a term, which is kind of like the one right way. You know, there's one engineered way of doing the work. And then um, last it is stunning when you read a, an old text, of course, they're not politically correct or different, you know, different things like that. Um, but he actually talks, he starts to substantiate some of what he's saying about like real experiences that he's had with workers and how he, you know, essentially brought harmony to the factory and they were more productive because of the work that he'd done. And he provides this example of, um, of a worker who uh, was Pennsylvania Dutch, which means that they're um, actually German and um, and just, you know, essentially they're just a worker, a hard worker. Um, and he is, you know, very condescending. Like it's it's interesting. He like writes down the conversation he's having this, with this worker saying like, you know, basically, are you a, you know, are you a high-priced man and the guy's you know like that he's you know it's like he's doing a little bit of the you know mark twain kind of like writing down the slaying in the um in a literal way but so it, he's you know insisting that the guy like be direct with them and tell him you know essentially like if you're a hard worker all of that kind of stuff um and then here, I'm going to just drop into the end of the conversation. Well, then I was a high-priced man. Now, hold on, hold on. You know, just as well as I do that a high-priced man has to do exactly as he's told from morning till night. You've seen this man here before, haven't you? And he's, you know, pointing to the capitalist, I believe. And he's like, no, I have never seen him. Well, if you are a high-priced man, you will do exactly as this man tells you tomorrow from morning till night. When he tells you to pick up a pig, and that's a big chunk of steel, um, when he tells you to pick up a pig and walk, you pick it up and you walk. And when he tells you to sit down and rest, you sit down. You do that right straight through the day. And what's more, no backtalk. Now, a high-priced man does just what he's told and no backtalk. Do you understand that? When this man tells you to walk, you walk. When he tells you to sit down, you sit down. And you don't talk back to him. Now you come 
on to work here tomorrow morning, and I'll know before night whether you are a really a high-priced man or not. And so, okay, so into quote, and, he's, and then he summarizes, he's like, this seems to be rather rough talk. And indeed, it would be if applied to an educated mechanic or even an intelligent laborer. With a man of the mentally sluggish type of Schmidt, it is appropriate and not unkind since it is effective in fixing his attention on the high wages which he wants and away from what, if it were called to his attention, he probably would consider impossibly hard work. So I just wanted, you know, I think that there's so much of like, kind of once we get into the Barbara Ehrenreich there, that's like, you know, he just wrote it. He just said it um, in a way that I don't think anybody would today, you know. So that's, that's Taylorism, and, I, and I, you know, I'll admit I haven't read this whole book yet. I'm only about halfway through it, but there's just a ton of great content there. Um, I, um, yeah, I'll come back to the Toyota stuff, but I wanted to move over to Barbara Ehrenreich. Okay, so Barbara Ehrenreich, she is a... No, New York Times bestseller, author. I think this is the book that really got her famous in the first place, uh, though I think it is um, uh, a fraction of what uh, Nickel and Dimed got her. So this was 1989, and, um, and then Nickel and Dimed was just more um, a book as a journalist writing about what it is to essentially take, uh, as a journalist, she took some working class jobs and then just wrote about it and what her experiences were like. In this fear of falling, um, she's more just kind of given the history of the middle class in America and um, talking about, you know, essentially the, the fear that the middle class has that it will fall back into being working class. It was written in 1989, and um, I think, you know, basically it totally holds up. There's a section here that, you know, is part of the class that I thought was particularly interesting because she writes about, um, I guess, you know, the, the kind of where the middle class comes from and the conflict between, you know, what she's calling the middle class or the uh, professional middle class with the working class. And um, it is referencing an essay that she wrote 10 years earlier or a little bit more that that was actually where the term got coined for the professional managerial class. Mm -hmm. So Barbara Ehrenreich in the late 70s published an essay called the professional managerial class with her husband at the time. And it's a pretty academic article that we'll be, you know, discussing um, at our next session, and um, you know, it was clearly written 
for the left, for socialists, whereas this book, Fear of Falling, is for a, a mass audience, and it's mm -hmm. specifically talking about that same group of people who we often call the middle class, but as, you know, Dave has mentioned, the middle class also, you know, includes a lot of um, small business owners, and so Fear of Falling is, um, you know, doing some work to distinguish, not, not, it's really not the main focus, but distinguish between, you know, the small business owners and the profesh, professional managerial class, because the, the PMC, the professional managerial class often ends up having um, some different values than the small business owners. So, um, those often end up being more liberal, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, of course, not exclusively and not universally, but um, the with the the professional managerial class, they end up having um, a focus on public service and education. So, you know, essentially, you get your education and then you um, pay back to society by you know getting a job whether it's you know a government job or some kind of um, social service or something like that where you know you're you're making the world a, a better place so that's that's kind of what the the book is about um the the passage that um, we're talking about here is called an, an ancient antagonism. And um, I'm going to read uh, just a, a short piece here just to get us started. Yes. Uh, so, but working class hostility towards the middle class was not the bitter product of one turbulent decade. To the working class, the professional middle class is an elite. Money is only part of its perceived advantage. The other difference, which middle-class people have traditionally not liked to acknowledge, arises from the division of labor between the two classes. And obviously, we uh, discussed that a little bit with Taylor. People in both classes must, for, must work for a living. But as John Kenneth Galbraith has observed all work is not the same. For most people, meaning working class people, work is quote, fatiguing or monotonous or at a minimum, a source of no particular pleasure. Only in the professional middle class is work seen and often experienced as intrinsically rewarding, creative and important. But to admit the difference, Galbraith argued, would be to acknowledge a deep and disquieting inequality. And then has a quote here. In both capitalist and communist society, it serves the democratic conscience of the more favored groups to identify themselves with those who do hard physical labor, a lurking sense of guilt over a more pleasant, agreeable, and remun I don't know how to say that word remunerative life can often be assuaged by the observation, I am a worker too. Thank you. Um, so 
I think that I, I that was worth reading because it's you know one of the critical pieces of like why we're even talking about the PMC in the first place is because you know like for example me as a socialist I want to bring unity between the working class you know there's all kinds of things that divide the working class and anything that divides the working class essentially disempowers the working class the the power of the working class comes in unity and i and i might even still argue that the pmc is a part of the working class which we can get to at some point but you know what's critical that barbara ehrenreich is capturing is that there's obviously a very critical difference which is the division of labor between mental and physical labor physical labor tends to you know destroy your body <laughs> um mental labor tends to be a lot more prestigious and even give some kind of power over the structure of society which you know we can get to it at some point possibly but the the point being is that there's an extreme difference between the two you know if marx is defining class based off of the um, relation to production. The capitalists own the means of production. The workers, you know, essentially are selling their labor power in order to, you know, survive. The PMC are um, are the ones who essentially are um, doing a lot of the strategy behind how production happens, you know, whether that's business process, that kind of stuff, or it's it's some kind of like creating some kind of social cohesion, trying to, um, you know, essentially calm kind of how uh society's functioning that kind of stuff hmm. okay so i've been talking for a long time and i have some i think i still have some you know significant things to say but i just want to check in real quick um any questions or comments or you know recommendations for things to cover at this point dave yeah so um we'll we'll bring in the actual chat later i mean unless of course you want to uh type it out right now but for the time being we had talked about the lecture portion being like i will hystericize elton a little bit ask some questions for clarification as we go but andrew if you want to uh write it out go ahead i was just going to say that i'm glad you brought up aaron reich's uh essay I know that there's multiple essays she wrote on the topic as well as articles, but I, I, I feel like for a concept that has so much, uh, I don't want to say baggage, um, it, for a concept that so many professors are willing to sneer, scoff, disavow, dismiss, in a sort of seemingly knee-jerk way that almost seems angry, I would expect that there would be a good academic treatise 
on why it's wrong and that that treatise would begin like any good argumentative essay, but especially as any good primary text tends to when it's really doing an intervention in a field. And that is to say what they all seem to do, all the great primary texts say, here's the core issue that everyone's missing. And here's what everyone's saying. And here's why they're wrong. <laughs> and so that doesn't seem to exist. And I've tried to find it, people who want to downplay and dismiss and act like, oh, well, it's not a real class or, oh, it's not sufficiently traditionally Marxist or whatever, or like, which is funny coming from non-dogmatic Marxists when all of a sudden they become dogmatic Marxists. Um, the, whole, the, whole, the whole way across, I go, okay, what, what, who are you arguing with? Who is the source that you are arguing with? Like who, who are these people that use this term that you don't like or that you disagree with? And the most recent example of an exchange like that, the person referenced Catherine Liu. And I wanted to say that, you know, anybody who's heard of the term in recent years it probably got it because Catherine Liu published the book Virtue Hoarders and was has been brought on to Jacobin because there's a couple of people who run a show or a couple of the hosts at Jacobin really like her. And so they bring Catherine Liu on to talk about it. And I've brought Catherine Liu on to talk about it as well, which is a video I will re-release onto this channel eventually. But what I wanted to say about that is uh, whether we're talking about Catherine Liu or Thomas Frank, or anyone else who seems to reference it nowadays, the people who have a basis in the literature can't talk about it without reference to Ehrenreich, but the people who seem to dismiss it the quickest are not people who've read Ehrenreich. And so the, the important thing here that I wanted to emphasize is that maybe they did read it or talk to somebody who read Fear of Falling, but so far I feel like this this essay that coins the term, making it like the founding essay of this discourse in a sort of sense, at least on the left, because Burnham's on the right doing something similar. Um, it's the theoretical piece that everything else points back to. And when I finally read it, I mean, this was long after college, right? It's because Elton found it and it's, it's really where the, you said it's the most academic. It's, it's definitely where the arguments are at. But like you said, we'll be dealing with that next time. And so I just kind of wanted to say all of this for people because we're walking this fine line between people who are coming to theory because they are leftists and they want to know how to, have, how to better understand themselves in the world so they can be strategic in their action. Um, but then we also have people who are interested in philosophy and theory who might not be coming from activism or from the left. And, uh, or we have people who are more post left, which is I think a boogeyman at this point. I'm not really sure that there's much of such a thing, but the reason I'm saying all of this is because wherever you're coming from and whatever you're looking for in this course, if you're looking for the, the arguments, next time in two weeks from today, Elton will be lecturing on the theoretical treatise on the topic. And I will be lecturing on the right-wing theoretical treatise on the topic, not because I'm a right-winger, but because I think that it's fucking important 
because people tend to be like, oh, what, this idea came from James Burnham? Huh, well, fuck him. And it's like, I don't, that's an ad hominem. I don't know if anyone realizes it, but that's an ad hominem. We have to take the argument seriously. And so, you know, the one of the ways that this course has been advertised is that you're going to be getting it from left, right, and center. You're going to be getting a variety of standpoints and formulations of this thesis. And so, anyway, this is Normie Day. We're dealing with popular bestseller types of books that kind of touch on this issue, but for a more usual, usually normie liberal audience. Okay. So that was just what I thought. I don't know. I needed to add as an addition there, but you're doing Absolutely. great. You're doing great. great. All right. And I, and along with what you're just saying, I forgot to mention that Barbara Ehrenreich, um, I think she might've stepped down by 1989, but she was actually one of the founding members of Democratic Socialists of America and was even like co-chair, I think for seven years, uh, for the first seven years and then um, and then stepped down. I think she, to be honest, I never f investigated it. She had some level of frustration with the organization, um, but uh, that's a topic for another time. I, so, I don't, I honestly don't know that I would have ever really tuned into or thought very seriously about the PMC concept if it wasn't for frustrations with the DSA. Right. So yeah. Yeah, we'll have we'll have more we'll have more opportunities to discuss that for sure. Cool. Okay, so um, you know, one of the main things that I you know wanted to talk about here is kind of the the I guess just the um, role of the PMC in taming the working class, if you will, and then talking about working class resentment, uh, which I think I can do somewhat concisely. Um, the, the main thing is, you know, I talked about uh, Taylor, and I think that you can see it all in Taylor. So, um, you know, Taylor was a as an engineer, and he wanted to, you know, engineer society in a way that would make it function better. And I think, you know, today we have the term uh, technocrat, which, you know, often PMC gets uh, associated with like some kind of technocracy. I think even Barbara Ehrenreich might say it explicitly that the, you know, the dream of the the PMC is where we, you know, the PMC could engineer capitalism to work really well for everybody. And, you know, if that were possible, like, sure, that'd be better than what we have today. But, you know, I think that, you know, she argues that it, it just, it is, proven wrong by the PMC itself in that, um, you know, the under the 20th century, which is kind of the century of the PMC, um, uh, you know, extreme poverty, rem you know, remained like it, it, it stayed in existence. That the, that the role of the PMC, you know, originally like in the late 1800s was to take um, the class conflict between the capitalists and the workers and engineer some kind of 
scenario that worked in everybody's interests. And, and you know, and Taylor talked about that explicitly. Um, you know, that I know, yeah, Aaron Reich talks about the Pinkertons, for example. Pinkertons are famous as being like, you know, essentially the the, the police for the capitalists to, you know, clamp down on the workers and um, essentially to beat beat up the workers if the workers went on strike and that kind of stuff. And the PMC came about as a class and they really exploded as far as population wise um, at turn of the century because capitalism started making enough money that it could finance the PMC. And really what that means is that the PMC convinced the capitalists that it was in their interest to engineer a better solution than the Pinkertons. So, um, you know, a lot of what this text is, is about is just, you know, really quickly wrapping up like what that looked like. Taylorism is one example. Oh, and I wanted to mention just real quick, if anybody's interested, there's a movie out there called The Founder, which is um, slightly different, but um, it's uh, about the guy who, you know, uh, Ray Kroc is his name. He ended up being the guy that made McDonald's uh, famous, but the like first quarter of the movie is actually about the McDonald's brothers who clearly are applying Taylorism to their fast food restaurant um, and, you know, which revolutionized fast food. Um, but it's, it's, you know, as somebody who's interested in process improvement, I think it's fascinating to see them put it into a movie. So the founder uh, with Michael Keaton, um, if anybody's interested. So that happened uh, turn of the century, um, you know, a side note, it's worth mentioning that in the 1930s, um, worker militancy actually came back uh, with the Great Depression. Workers um, did end up kind of, you know, essentially as a working class movement, um, come, you know, become militant again in spite of the PMC. Um, you know, maybe that's a topic we can get to at another time, but um, it's something that Aaron Reich mentions and I think is interesting. Uh, another thing that I wanted to mention is that when the PMC explodes as a class, which is just, and when I say explodes, I mean like, you know, grows six times faster than any other, you know, class or segment of society, um, that it's really, I didn't realize this until reading the, you know, Aaron Reich books and essays multiple times and then getting in, even reading in the Taylor, that it's actually coming at the cost of the working class. It's not just, um, you know, another cultural group of people. It's actually um, like what in, in Taylor, where he's talking about division of labor, really what he's doing is he's saying the workers have to, are empowered too much to decide how they get their work done. We need to extract that from 
the workers and instead give that to the managers as the, you know, but the engineers, the PMC. And so that what that means is that it's de-skilling the working class. So um, the um, the working class jobs become less meaningful, that they become less um, intrinsically rewarding. And, you know, less, and, and by intrinsically rewarding is just meaning like, you know, you can put your heart into it and feel like you made a difference in the world. Um, you know, that, that being said, I want to be clear, like, I think that there's a lot of working class jobs out there that still do that. But Aaron Reich's talking about the areas where the PMC has made an overt move to extract that. Um, she talks about um, midwives and the role. And, and so, and I'm talking, I'm going to talk about this just because working class culture is another main thing that she talks about is that the working class culture got extracted from them as well. And they were kind of, you know, forced out of <laughs> what what they were used to. So, and, and midwifery is just one small piece of this that Erin Reich actually wrote. That's actually where she got her start was writing about um, mm. healthcare industry and the role of women. So she came out of the feminist movement um, and was tying feminism, which was very PMC in the 60s and 70s and tying it to working class movement, which is, was, was her background. And she talks about how um, the midwives were actually better at, you know, helping uh, women birth their children than the surgeons who, you know, were killing women, like literally, um, because they didn't know about germ theory yet. So they were like doing, um, you know, like work on cadavers and then immediately afterwards, like helping um, a woman birth her child and then killing the mother um, because of the infections that were caused. And um, yet the surgeons and the medical um, industry had the you know the, the political clout and the power in order to like enforce laws that um, made midwifery illegal in spite of it being more you know effective. Um, I use that as just kind of like a a really good example of where um, the um, the focus was you know, power of the PMC at the cost of the uh, working class. And one one last example that I wanted to give here of um, of this, and and to be honest, this I think might even be like a hidden gem that um, you know, the left has 
over like ha has missed um, in the last few years, as far as I can tell. Um, but there was something called um, the Americanization Program. So, in, and I don't know, she was referenced in this um, and elsewhere. I don't know, are you familiar with it, for example? Only from this reading. Okay, so I did a little bit of research and I realized like, oh, of course, this is, this is what I, you know, know about. So, you know, my wife, um, uh, for example, her grandma came over from Ireland and I don't know, that was like the 40s or 50s. So it was, you know, on the tail end of this Americanization program. But I, I mentioned her because I, you know, like her, um, what's called an Irish brogue, but basically her accent, um, she would hide it. It, like it, you know, so you wouldn't know she was from Ireland, but yeah, she was born there. She came over when she was 12. Um, and once they got to America, you know, they wanted to integrate as quickly as possible and basically, you know, disavow their Irish heritage. Mm. And that, of course, like when I was a kid, was a very common thing that I had heard about because so like in the you know 80s and early 90s I think it was already clear that there was something kind of you know wrong about that I'm, or maybe I should say more clearly like you know people were proud of their Irish heritage and you know and uh or whatever um heritage and uh you know side note my my grandma was Chinese my mom was adopted so you know, we had that as another example about how my grandma had, um, you know, especially during World War II, not wanting to, um, you know, she she made it very clear. She she like joined in with Bob Hope and actually toured and sang for the the uh, American troops. We can talk about that some other time. But the point is, is like you know, if you were an immigrant, you wanted to be very clear that you were an American, you wanted to speak English, and um, Aaron Reich talks about that program as being, you know, a PMC program that the PMC thought, you know, as part of the New Deal era, which we can talk about that too, but just like the PMC, you know, really thought like, they were helping these immigrants, but you know they were also like ripping them out of their culture, which, um, you know, like felt very like yeah, of course, like that's that's what they should be doing, but that's of course ideology. Um, Aaron Reich talks a lot about like all kinds of ways in which the PMC was um, extracting working class culture. I think alienating might be a good term, the working class from their culture or, you know, I think, you know, probably oftentimes like uh, good intentions, but having the consequence of, I guess just making you know, them good, docile, um, 
workers and citizens kind of you know dependent upon the capitalist class um i realize i should say one last thing which is just kind of with all of this i've just been assuming but but need to be explicit about you know we're talking about the pmc as its own class and trying to bring class harmony between the capitalist and the working class um with this um you know i think that the important point is that it's you know reinforcing the hegemony of the capitalist class and you know that's um maybe that's all you know i should just say like that's a whole conversation of its own um but obviously a, a pretty critical piece of what all of this stuff is about when you talk about the pmc that's you know a, a critical piece of what what we're talking about is the hegemony of the capitalist class so Okay, so I've done a bunch of talking, and um, that being said, can I hand it over to you to talk for a sec, and I'll be back in like three minutes. So. Absolutely. Are you going to be hearing? Um, yeah. What okay. Yeah. You bet. Absolutely. Okay. Go for it. Be back. And but but as far as the lecture goes, this you would say your segment yeah. here is at its conclusion. Yep. You bet. Um, and, I would say let's take the questions and put them all at the end of the lectures because obviously you want to be here for my yeah. lecture. And I know that you have dinner two hours from the time that we began. And so yeah. <laughs> you end up, I know you're going to feel like you want to push it off, but for your health's sake and for getting to bed by an early time and everything like that. Here, I want a lot of the conversation that could be stirred up here to trickle out into two other places besides right here. And one of those places is the forum. And the other place is the week in review conversations that will happen uh, for the Friday, for the Friday stream. Okay, hold on. Let me fix the camera. Uh, Elton, when you turn off the camera, it messes up the OBS, but we can talk about that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. That, I can leave that it on and I'll be back in a sec. Right. Okay. So, uh, Point of order before I jump in here, I will just say that uh, every Friday evening, if you are in the United States, I am doing a week in review for Theory Underground. And this is sort of think of it as an equivalent of the, of like if, if someone has a Discord community, like the call in, like people can join the conversation and stuff like that. The last one was really, really awesome. Andrew. Um, Masters, Master Signified Bodies here in the chat, as well as uh, Nick and Mikey joined that uh, last week. And we, we ended up talking a lot about the PMC and addressing drama around the concept, or at least around an interaction between myself and someone else, um, you know, when we were talking about it. Point being, uh, I want people who are more uh, hesitant to participate by voice and video to feel very comfortable uh, putting their questions, comments, concerns, quotes, articles are sharing, etc., in the forum. And that sometimes those will be things that, if they're okay with it, maybe we'll read it out 
on the following week. Uh, but also if you are someone who loves to talk and engage at the conversational level and you have a basis in these texts, then we really want you to be able to be a part of that conversation. And so uh, as far as the reading of these texts goes, the other thing that y'all should know about, and you will see this on the syllabus, is that where the excerpts and essays are listed and you are able to follow those links to get the PDFs for the documents that you will be reading, the ones that we are uh, presenting on today, as well as the ones that we will be presenting on in the near future, you will also see a link to listen to an exegetical audiobook excerpt. And that's a very jargonistic way of saying that it's not, a, it's not a true audiobook in the sense of it being read aloud in its pure form, but instead I'm adding a little context or relating it to something every once in a while. Um, for one, because that's, you know, that's one of the things that seems to have proven out over the thousands of years of education is that educators reading aloud and then commenting on is, is one of the things people get a lot from. Um, but also because copyright, uh, if you just read the book and it's not in the public domain, you're technically copyright infringing. So I also want to encourage you all, though, including people who already have their channels and people who don't, to think about doing your own exegetical readings, whether that means turning on Instagram and doing this week's excerpt, whether that means uh, live streaming or doing, you know, recording a video and putting it up after the fact. Everyone is encouraged to do this as well. But anyway, if you just want to listen to it because you're not going to be able to read it this week, um, it's there. I did one for the Thomas Frank excerpt, which I'll be lecturing on here momentarily. And I also read the excerpt on from uh, Fear of Falling, which Elton was just talking about. Uh, I read that aloud this morning. Okay, that's the points of order. Remember, uh, you can always drop any comments, questions, or anything like that in the chat. Welcome, Canera, on the YouTube side. Uh, you are, because it's YouTube, able to go back to the beginning and then speed up if you want to catch up. You're welcome to do that. If not, welcome to my lecture. You missed Elton's. It was wonderful, very informative, and a really good springboard for me here because Taylorism is not like it's not like this Frederick Taylor guy was sitting around thinking, hmm, what could I write that would be a bestseller? I mean, maybe there was a factor like that involved, but no, I think that you know these progressives at the time were part of a world historic movement that had not existed except for perhaps in its, uh, in its uh, germ form. Change something here. It was something new in the world. Progressivism, as we understand it today, is derivative of progressivism as it was developed at the beginning of the 20th century. But the difference, the big difference, especially for people who are coming from a more radical position, is to see the class conciliatory nature of progressivism that progressives used to be blunt, explicit, and straightforward about. Nowadays, 
they'll do anything not to be conscious of class. If they get a little conscious of class, then they'll just say, oh, I'm a worker too. Haha, <laughs> let's get on with it. Which is to say, a, a willful ignorance of the origin, intent, and function, not only of progressivism, but of the PMC. And these two things go hand in hand because Charles, uh, Frederick Taylor, as well as um, Woodrow Wilson and the Carnegie Institute and um, all of these people, they were talking together, they were meeting together. These were not secret meetings. This was not some grand conspiracy. This was just the politics of the day. And it's something that is sublated in today's progressivism, but it's something that goes unacknowledged. And that means that a lot of times when you have people who break from progressivism today because they become radical in some way, they usually become like, oh, they have a problem with the way that the progressives celebrate tolerance and compromise, or they have a problem with the way that progressives um, go along with neoliberalism, or they have a, they're fought, there's a, there's a whole item list, or, you know, there's, there's all these different ways that progressive rhetoric masks structural inequalities, and various radical traditions and approaches will point those out, call them into question, and try to hold the progressive's feet to the fire. The concern on my side is that it's, a, it's really about critique of ideology. And that is to say that it's not about the stated beliefs or the explicit beliefs held by people who are progressives who then become radicalized, uh, but it's instead the mode and the mindset of the habitualized, subjectivized ideology that is embodied and manifested and played out through and uh, uh, through the professional managerial class. And obviously this trickles out into every other class as well. Uh, people in the ruling class might act PMC, people in the working class might act PMC. Um, and so what does it mean to act PMC? And what is this mode, this mindset and ideology? And what are ways that even though you might be thoroughly opposed to progressivism, you nonetheless fall into the grand plan laid out by the progressives who were self-conscious about the class conciliatory nature of their project, which is not just to say class conciliatory, like, oh, let's everybody work together, but as Elton pointed out, in a way that's always beneficial to capital and that is in its essence inherently structured to be divisive within the working class. There are, are a variety of theorists who we can think with for making sense of the various ways that what seemed easier for Marx or at least uh, socialist Marxist anarchists of the time of the Second International um, there, there are various ways of, of understanding why uh, people trying to organize today are up against a, a new kind of beast. I think that probably the most important one is this PMC thing. Um, you know, people can talk about the finance era of capitalism. They can talk about the consumer era of capitalism. 
those two things don't make sense outside of the PMC analysis. People can talk about the failures of the left after it wins in revolutionary Russia or China or Vietnam or Cuba for that matter, which I mean, are, these are all partisan and, and, and complicated things to say. And I'm just gonna keep talking, <laughs> intro level shit, come on. So failure is something that typically if we fail, then we wanna go, okay, how do we not fail again? Okay. But if there have been authors who keep pointing to how the situation has changed, but the theory has not changed to accommodate to the change situation, and that's why we keep failing, but then people who are super committed to the fight just keep blowing you off saying, no, it doesn't matter. No, that's not real. No, that's not authentic Marxism. That's not orthodox. That's not traditional. That's not a sufficient theory of class or whatever. There's a lot of people who are going to get disenchanted there. Okay. And for good reason. And so I'm going to be the representative of those people in these conversations. Um, I referenced the post left and said it's a boogeyman earlier, but because it's made up, I will go ahead and nominate myself the Pope of the post left. What's up, everybody? The, the word of God is being transmuted through me and I am the representative of the PMC or, oh, nice, nice slip <laughs> of the uh, post left here on this earth. And, the, and the, the reason that's a slip and the reason these two things are tied together is because every fucking time I bring up the PMC, it seems like uh, the people who have like this, this reaction against it, they really don't like it. They go, oh, this is a post left talking point, this is a post-left theory. Now, uh, one of the people who wrote one of the first books on the topic was a Trotskyist who was a lever, he left, um, and that was James Burnham. And so in a sort of sense, you could say that this concept really does have a basis in a post-left, um, specifically someone who left the left and became over time, basically a neocon. He was one of the founders of neoconservatism, which is where um, essentially the, the most hawkish foreign policy known to uh, American politics comes from, is from these people, right? So he wrote the managerial revolution and then he wrote uh, a book, I think it's called the Machiavellians or something like that. And the basic point is like, he sees domination in every sphere of life. He sees domination and uh, Machiavellian uh, politics working everywhere and says, that's the real situation. We have to be realists. Uh, being realists, when we look at what's really going on, we see that Marx's tr uh, predict predictions are not coming true. Sorry, my internet cut out there for a second, but I think I'm back. We're, we're good? Yeah. So James Burnham is a controversial and interesting figure. Um, he actually had a letter exchange arguing with Trotsky. Um, and his sort of black-pilled analysis is simply this. We thought the struggle at the ideological level 
but also in forms of governance here on this earth was between liberalism, communism, fascism. That's what we thought. But if we pull back the words and just look at what's really going on in all of these cases, we see managerial interventions into the market. So laissez-faire, unregulated, unharnessed markets becoming a thing of the past. What you see is managerial control over the means of production becoming more and more and more of a thing and state interventions to keep things going when the contradictions of capitalism cause them to stop being such a big factor that we can no longer go with the old theory. And so really, you know, he, he, and he does this all through a Marxist lens. So it's a cosmic inversal from the kinds of readings uh, I'm going to be talking about here with Thomas Frank. And I'll be talking a lot more about it next time. But basically, the, uh, his main point is just like, look, we got to be realists. What's the actual situation? The actual situation is that there's a lot of lofty phraseology going on over at the Soviet Union saying that they've actually achieved socialism. There's a lot of, oh, we care about the family and the nation over here in Nazi Germany. And then you got liberals saying that they care about these things that they care about. None of them actually care about these things. They're all just different brands of state capitalist monopoly capitalism, which is a different beast than what Marx was looking at. So the contradictions of capitalism might still be there in various ways, but they can be mediated through force and regulation, right? And all regulations are backed by state force or they wouldn't be regulations. And that's where, that's where people will say, this is post-left. And I mean, uh, that's a neoconservative way of framing everything. Um, but I also think we got to give the devil his due. We're not starting there though with my lecture because I don't think the point here is to get anybody to become a neocon. That's not my goal. But also my goal is not to get you to become a sock dem liberal like Thomas Frank or to join the DSA like Barbara Ehrenreich did. Or, uh, my, my goal is that you join me in thinking critically about what our current situation is from a variety of different ideological perspectives and positions, because I think the scientific thing to do when we're talking about social engineering and social change is to say that when you fail repeatedly, <laughs> okay, it's time to go back into the lab, go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what were our assumptions? What, which ones aren't playing out? Why aren't they playing out? And now obviously we don't have a controlled environment where we can repeat everything because our material conditions keep changing, people keep changing. And so everything's on the move. It's more like trying to fix the engine of a car that's on the freeway. I've got to climb over and get under the hood and you're trying to drive and I, we're trying to communicate. And it, that's more like our situation than an actual scientific lab. But nevertheless, I think it's absolutely incumbent on anybody who wants to approach things in a critically uh, reflective way and try to do things uh, scientifically 
to take a period of time from time to time, suspending presuppositions and thinking through how your assumptions and the theories that you're operating under could have been wrong. And so that's kind of the headspace that I've been in for a variety of reasons ever since basically 2020. In a sense, I've been doing a lot of the post-left readings um, without knowing it. Because when I talk about these things, then people are like, oh, you're post-left. Who, where? Do they have a manifesto? Do they have a program? Do they have a leader? Is there even like a bunch of podcasts doing this post-left thing? I don't think so. So I think what people are talking about is a handful of Twitter accounts that all went like in the direction of Tucker Carlson because they got burnt out on leftism after Bernie. Like that to me is not a movement. That's not a real thing, but I'll still take on the, the sort of title here of, of Pope because fuck it, why not? So I wanna talk about Taylorism and the invention of not just the professional managerial class, but the invention of the professional managerial class being something that was made, fabricated, socially constructed, planned, engineered, administered, okay? These are not just a bunch of synonyms. The point is to really drive home something that is going to make so many progressives today just, it's gonna make their skins crawl. Because at this point in time, if you even question power, people are going to be like, oh my God, what is this, a conspiracy theory? What, you think people just sit around in rooms and decide things? Well, they used to be more open about it, but you know, capitalism and the state like have always had meetings <laughs> and building power and maintaining power has always been essential to both capitalism and the state. So it's not like a handful of people, much less Jews, sat around in a room and made decisions that literally engineered everything to be the way it is. There's a lot more human complexity involved, but some of the biggest, most major players at the turn of the century were in a conversation with one another, trying to figure out what's another way What's another way outside of what we see today, which is to say the old left is super successful, which means that capitalists everywhere are having a very hard time. And to be sympathetic, think about like your normie manager, your normie boss. They don't wanna be hated. They're a human being. They have to go home at the end of the night. They have to sleep. They probably have kids they love. They don't, some of them don't feel good when they have to let people go, right? And so there's already always this antagonism at work. Progressivism is looking at the situation and it's like, okay, workers don't have rights or representation. I mean, they literally have to organize and build their own institutions because they're shut out from civic society in a lot of cases. We feel bad about this. We wanna have a better working relationship between the capitalists and their workers. So what's the solution? I actually want to read a bunch of quotes as well. The one I'm gonna start with is from Weapons of Mass Instruction. So if Eamon is still in the chat, um, 
he just read this like last year on my recommendation. I really, really appreciate John Taylor Gatto, who uses a lot of libertarian rhetoric, um, being able to base a lot of his stuff still in a class analysis. But he's the first one who really drew my attention to this, this period as very formative for the uh, American progressive situation that we all take for granted today. So I'm skipping a lot of stuff and cutting straight to it. This is all in the context of him talking about education, but public education as part of a progressive vision was being rolled out in conjunction with this idea of creating class divisions within the working class, but not between the working class and the capitalists. Okay. He says, we don't need Karl Marx's conception of a grand warfare between the classes to see that it is in the interest of complex management, economic or political, to dumb people down, to demoralize them, to divide them from one another, from one another and to discard them if they don't conform. Class may frame the proposition as when Woodrow Wilson, then president of Princeton University, said the following to the New York City School Teachers Association in 1909. Okay, so two years before Taylorism really breaks out with the book. Quote, we want one class of persons to have a liberal education and we want another class of persons, a very much larger class of necessity in every society to forego the privileges of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific difficult manual tasks. But the motives behind the disgusting decisions that bring about these ends need not be class-based at all. So obviously that was an end quote. Now we're back to, to Gatto. The motives need not be class-based at all. They can stem purely from fear or from the by now familiar belief that efficiency is a paramount virtue rather than love, liberty, laughter, or hope. Above all, they can stem from simple greed. So he's talking about basic human motivations, obviously, but at the level of Woodrow Wilson being like the first major progressive president, as well as somebody who was working with the Carnegie and Rockefeller, uh, uh, what's the word that's not billionaire, but that's bigger than that? Is it like tycoon? Like these guys were like dynasties right? Like these guys were on a level completely different from the sort of fictitious capital that makes us see Elon Musk in the news all the time, right? There had never been that level of wealth in human history. Yeah. Oh, I think your mic is up, so you're super quiet. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just uh, saying again, yeah, there had never been that level of wealth in, in human history, but yeah, I, I can't think of the right word so tycoon sounds great <laughs> no and it wasn't it wasn't just like magnate magnate yeah magnate or titans right they also get referred to as titans um because that was like a material wealth it was one backed by gold it wasn't just digital it wasn't something that a state could just change it's like no they had the material uh, wealth and command over the economy and over labor, like in a way that may never be reached again. We don't know. That was definitely the pinnacle of it, though. 
So another quote by Gatto, and then we'll move into the stuff I want to get into here. Between 1896 and 1920, a small group of industrialists and financiers, together with their private charitable foundations, heavily subsidized university chairs, researchers, and school administrators, actually spent more money on forced schooling's early years than did the government. Just two men, Carnegie and Rockefeller, were themselves spending more as late as 1915. In this laissez-faire fashion, a system of modern schooling was constructed without any public participation or even much public knowledge. Motives were complex, but it will clear your heart, or it will clear your head wonderfully to listen to what Rockefeller's General Education Board thought the mission should be. Its statement occurs in multiple forms. This one taken from a 1906 document called Occasional Letter Number One. Quote, in our dreams, people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions of intellectual and moral education fade from our minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, educators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have an ample supply. The task we set before ourselves is very simple. We will organize children and teach them to do in a perfect way the things their fathers and mothers are doing in an imperfect way. I mean, yeah, that's the dream, right? Get some philosopher kings together. They can just tell everyone else what to do. Everyone else will do the stuff that you don't want to do. And then you can go do the things that you do want to do, right? I mean, it's really cool if you get to be in that little club. But if you're not in that little club, well, sucks to be us. So why is this how I want to preface a conversation that's supposed to really be getting to this excerpt from Listen Liberal? from Thomas Frank that you will all be hopefully reading or listening to here in the next week. Simply this, schooling itself is something that I have always, well, I was about to say I've always believed in, but in critical pedagogy, they separate schooling from education. Education is held up as like this ideal Obviously, we all like education. Schooling is considered this disciplinary apparatus that is a much more anxiety-inducing and longer-term form of the sorting hat in Harry Potter. It is sorting you not into the house that you will belong to, but rather a career or if you're not very good at school, then some, some shitty job, right? If you do good, the sorting hat will put you into one of the professions. If you do not do good, it will put you down into the, well, you, you don't make very much money because that's low-skilled work. Um, sorry, 
you know, I guess you should have done better at school. If you really want more money, then you better go to college. That would already be formative on human beings if human beings were being plucked from their tribe and placed into the institution alongside all of their family members, their elders, their little siblings, but it's not that way. Instead, it's not just forced schooling, it's age segregated schooling that is done not on the basis of like where you are at, right? You're not being lumped up with kids that are where you are at. You're being put with kids that really like they have this arbitrary thing in common with you, their age. What is created here, what is socially constructed here is peer groups. It's a very powerful thing the more you think about it. Now in critical theory, we have to think about subjectivization, right? There is no such thing as a pure Cartesian cogito in a vacuum that says, I think, therefore I am. And then I can deduce from, and I can extrapolate and I can, no, 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 no. We're embodied. We perceive in a context that has a history and yeah, class is a part of it. But what is this thing, this very recent invention of peer groups? Okay, well, it comes in conjunction with, and this gets developed throughout that book, which is Weapons of Mass Instruction by John Taylor Gatto. He develops this idea of, how this forced schooling with the standardized testing that's all pointing towards the professions or else you're a failure, done in the age-segregated manner with all of these rankings and arbitrary tests and all of the stuff that comes with that, so that you develop a very, very strong identification with who you are vis-a-vis -vis those peers. You will never see yourself as, oh, I'm a sophomore. Of course, you'll see yourself as a sophomore in reference to the senior or the freshman, but you're a punk sophomore, or you're a gothic sophomore, or you're a jock sophomore. And more and more and more and more ways are developed by people who are trying to find a way of differentiating themselves. So, our fixation on identity comes out of children being plucked from their intergenerational contexts and their family life and their local neighborhood and placed into a setting where they're told, oh, but you're one of these kinds of people, a freshman. Oh, you're one of these people, a senior. And you're either good or bad on the basis of how you are doing in comparison to the rest of them. Okay. This isn't like evil. We have to organize society and there's a lot of people on this planet. But you can't call yourself a critical theorist and not think critically about subjectivity going through that grinder. And for me, someone who comes from a homeschool environment, and really it was more of a de-schooling environment where there really just wasn't much discipline at all. I didn't really have a structure. I didn't really read anything nonfiction until I was 23 and decided to go to college. I didn't learn how to read until I was 12 for that matter. For me, I've always been weirded out. Like there's something I'm missing. And then people are like, well, Dave, you're probably just autistic. 
And I've gotten that a few times. Highly functioning, obviously. <laughs> These terms really, I mean, and I like Lionel Bailey's approach to thinking about autism as a Lacanian. Uh, for in a lot of cases, what's being talked about here is less of say some uh, genetic uh, thing that made you that way so much as you were genetically predisposed to in a society that is postmodern and fractured like today, where we have these institutions that you are put through, uh, you come out the other side being like, I can't really function. There's something that's missing. What's the something that's missing? A community, a family, uh, you know, collective rituals that weren't just invented to make you either a subservient worker or an entitled PMC, right? These, this social order is very new and constantly on the move, changing all the time. There's not a lot of things that we can all get around unconsciously that we can all take for granted. Um, and so coming into this world uh, around 2000, 2004 to 2006 is when I was really kind of coming into the world. Um, functionally illiterate, not really understanding what's going on. My coworkers, there was just all these things that I always felt like just didn't make sense. Well, something that really helped me make sense of it all is thinking about the role of schooling, like what I had missed out on really is this strong sense of identification, like who I am vis-a-vis -vis my peer group. I never gained this strong sense of who I am vis-a-vis, -vis, which, which means in reference to my peer group. So that's a little bit about where I'm coming from. It's a little bit about why I see this and I, why I kind of fixate on this. And I think a lot about it. But the way that John Taylor Gatto factors in here should be obvious once you do the Thomas Frank excerpt reading or listen to my exegetical audiobook that I recorded last night that is currently available on the Theory Underground YouTube channel. But we're not going to get too into the weeds of the reading because I genuinely do believe that you will all do it for yourselves and come to your own conclusions. And my goal is not to tell you what to believe, right? My, my goal is not to tell you how to be a good leftist with this information. My goal is to tell you you should go into a period of moratorium and genuinely think about these things, even if it's only for a couple of days, even if it's only for a couple of weeks, think about it. Okay, so what is it that we're trying to think about? I keep talking about how the situation has changed and the theory hasn't kept up. What was the situation as far as traditional Marxism is concerned? Well, obviously everyone's always going to think about Charles Dickens and uh, Les Miserables, which is, I mean, for sure, that's a great place to go. But I actually have uh, a couple of quotes from the Communist Manifesto that I want to pull up if I can find them. And I'm freaking out. Where are they? Oh, here they are. Okay. So I'm just going to read these paragraphs. Modern industry has converted the little workshop of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, 
They are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all, in the, indiv in, in the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly the despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and the more embittering it is. And they hadn't even seen nothing yet, right? In the sense of Taylorism coming in to make these contradictions that were so stark at the time when Marx is looking at this to make those almost invisible, right? Where the majority of my coworkers at Amazon get along great with the management to their face, but also don't want to talk shit behind their back right? Because they're individualized. They're atomized. The atomization was not so strong at this point. The stark contradiction between who's calling the shots and what your actual situation of subservience actually is and the people who get to call the shots. Like th this contradiction was obvious. It's not so obvious anymore. Why? Well, this whole class is about why. Next quote, the increasing improvement of machinery ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combinations, trade unions, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out into riots. Okay, once again, what is he concretely or empirically seeing when he's in London? He's seeing the stark contradiction obvious in the factory, as well as the lines of people every morning outside of the factories, hoping that they can be exploited for 17 hours a day so that they can get some crappy bread, you know? These are people who know that they are a class. They might need a little bit of theory. They might need a little bit of guidance, but they're already organizing. They already know they're being fucked. They already know they're being fucked so much that they are building their own institutions because they don't have representation or legal rights in society, much less protections in the factories, okay? So these are not unions that come about because some progressives wanted to get their hands dirty and go into a factory and try to rally the troops and tell these workers what their interests are. No, these are unions that come about because these workers have seen some bullshit and have dealt with it for a long time and got fed up and did something on their own. And Marx is looking at that and he's a Hegelian of a sort and he's thinking about the progression of history and he's trying to see where this is going and how people who are trying to help can help. Next quote. Now and then the workers are victorious, but only for a time. The real fruit of their battles lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. The union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry. And that place the workers of, and, and that place, places the workers of different localities in contact with one another, typo. It was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character into one national struggle between 
classes. Obviously, the, the bigger vision is that eventually these things compound into an international workers' movement. And it has to be international because if it's only national, then the bourgeoisie of any given nation where the workers are succeeding is going to outsource the work to some place where they're not unionized. And so, you know, there's, it has to be global in that sense. Okay. Now I want to turn to a couple of quotes from Frederick Engels's The Principles of Communism. He says, what is, I fucking love the first, the first, part one, what is communism? Communism is the doctrine of the conditions of the liberation of the proletariat. End of part one. What? Uh, well, it's just, it just is whatever is the conditions for the liberation of a proletariat. Okay. He, did he whet your curiosity? Part two, what is the proletariat? The proletariat is that class in society which lives entirely from the sale of its labor and does not draw profit of any kind of capital. This is why you get uh, sassy little people in the comment section sometimes if you're talking Marx, you're going to say, so what if, what if the worker has a Roth IRA, huh? Or what if the worker, yeah, what if the worker has a, I don't know, there's a variety of different ways of investing so that you can retire someday, right? And so, uh, I mean, if we were being strict to this, uh, then you're already not proletariat if you're drawing from capital in any way, right? Whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand for labor. Hence, on the changing state of business, on the vagaries of unbridled competition, the proletariat or the class of proletarians is, in a word, the working class of the 19th century. So then our question should be, then what is the working class of the 21st century? And what was the working class of the 20th century? If we are to be properly historical and dialectical, then what is the class composition of the 20th and 21st century? Do you think that Engels wouldn't have cared? I mean, I'm obviously arguing with people who hypothetically would be listening in who care about Engels' opinion. I also have to respect the fact that there's going to be a lot of people here who are like, we're tired of it. Why do people always reference Marx and Engels? My God, fair enough. Okay, well, I mean, I think it's good to have a basis in the conversation. It's good to have a basis in the theory. And almost all critical theory is an outgrowth from this and most of it's trying to contend with how things changed in some way, right? But what I wanted to draw your attention to here is when he says, not only that they do not draw profit from any kind of capital, part of progressivism is to find various ways of setting workers up with retirement plans, whether that's private or public. And so in a sense, because those are usually dependent on the stock market, this definition gets a little bit more complicated. But then whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand for labor, hence on the changing state of business, on the vagaries of unbridled competition. That is definitionally not the situation of the PMC. You could also say to some degree, maybe the petty bourgeoisies also, you know, no, no. 
socially necessary labor time as one of the core concepts in Das Kapital is basically the idea that how long it takes to do something has a lot, uh, uh, a lot is definitive in a sort of sense for how we value things, right? Because prices go up, prices go down. We go through booms, we go through busts. Competition is, it's all fine and dandy because there's a bunch of new technology. And so it's the wild, wild west and everyone's making a profit. And then all of a sudden, uh, everyone's up to date with the technology and it's harder and harder and harder to make a profit. So thus you see this tendency for the rate of profit to fall, which means that prices have to go up, which is one of the big factors in inflation. The prices for everything goes up, wrong. The price of the most important commodity of all does not go up, and that is wages itself, the cost of labor power, okay? Technological development shortens the socially necessary labor time of processes, meaning that more things can be produced quicker and sold cheaper, which means that those who are on the cutting edge of the technology are going to be able to make a profit even though they're undercutting their competition. Rationalization of the workplace, which is to say coming in and doing a tailorism to a workplace, or you know, saying, hey, you know what? Actually, this person could do the job of those three people. So let's get rid of those three people and have this person do that. Um, oh, and also if we merged this company with this company, then we could lay off a bunch of people who then become redundant because you only need one person doing this thing and one team of people doing this thing. And this team of people could pick up the slack from these other people. Re-rationalization of every sphere of our work life. It always comes back to socially necessary labor time. And the reason is, is because in a profitability crisis, you got to raise the prices on everything. You're not going to raise it as fast on wages, which means that you've got people working overtime, they're working longer, they're getting paid less in, com in relative comparison to what they can buy with that purchasing power. Okay. The professions are not subject to unbridled competition. They are, in a sense, a return to the Gilded Age. They are agreements between people who say, we all do this thing. Let's make sure other people can't do this thing unless they go through a backbreaking process. Really, it's not going to be backbreaking. It's going to be mind-breaking. It's the difference between physical and mental labor. But the point of a profession, look, you're a heart surgeon. You're a nurse. You're a professor. Wow, that's a big deal. That's very important stuff that you do. Nobody here is doubting that. And nobody here is advocating for the abolition of noble professions. Obviously, the PMC also creates a bunch of bullshit jobs. David Graeber is good for this. And that's a lot of people, even if they're technically adding value into the pockets of the capitalist, they're not really adding value into the world. And so that's where you get people in marketing agencies, that's where you get people whose process management involves going and just fucking ruining people's lives every goddamn day, <laughs> every goddamn day, you know, which is to some degree 
understandable. We don't want to be wasteful, right? It would be silly to have a lot of people doing something that a machine could do. It would be really silly to have, the point is, we could be sympathetic to the basic rationality at work, but because it's always towards private interest, it means that you got a lot of people who are doing things and it might be making somebody rich, but they also know in their heart, in their soul, somewhere inside of them, they feel that what they've been doing every day since college is bullshit. And so that's the thing that Graeber kind of focuses on is like, this is soul crushing. And he got thousands of emails after he wrote an article about bullshit jobs of people talking about their bullshit jobs. And you get people who say like, yeah, I really do like 15 minutes of work in a day, but I have to look busy. And so I busy myself with all these other things. I don't want to get you know laid off by one of these process people. This is why Mark Fisher and capitalist realism brings in the perfect difference between the industrial age of capitalism and the finance consumer blue collar kind of capitalist PMC uh, era. And that's the difference between the movie blue collar and the movie office space, which I just watched with Anne, who's in the audience. We just watched that like two days ago. I've added the founder, uh, the one or the founders recommended by Elton. I added that to the very end of the syllabus. It's under one, one founder just because essentially Ray Kroc acts like he's the founder of McDonald's, but obviously the McDonald's brothers were. So oh, that's just a side point, but <laughs> the founder. For sure, for sure. So I added the founder, blue collar and office space at the end of the syllabus under recommended readings. There's also recommended movies. And so in the next uh, few weeks, especially when you're doing your writing reflections, and if you're thinking about doing a final project, which might be selected for publication with something that Theory Underground does in the future, or you can go publish it somewhere else, it doesn't matter. You do what you want with it. But if you're interested in taking on a final project, um, an analysis of those movies, that's one cool thing that you can do. Um, comparing these various authors and how they agree or disagree on matters of ideology or theories of class, like all of these kinds of things are things that you can do. And there are things that we will be talking about as well as we go. Okay, so to bring it all back around, I was talking about uh, the burgeoning uh, of the PMC with a bunch of bullshit jobs, okay? And that was something that I brought up after saying, no, the, a lot of these professions are noble, okay? Well, what about the noble ones? Um, what, what is it about these noble professions that makes them so hard to do? And, and they're not bullshit. It's not bullshit to be a heart surgeon or to be a nurse. Yeah, but have you ever met somebody who's in med school? That's not necessary. That's bullshit. The amount of stress that they go through is made up. It's put in place not to weed out the lousy, lazy, stupid people from the excellent, excelling, you know, like the, the cream of the crop. No, it's, it's to break spirits and 
to make the ones who get through the filter to feel like they've really earned it. And that sense of having earned it and being above the ones who did not, that's the thing that you will see Thomas Frank really elaborating on throughout Listen Liberal, because every one of these authors is going to take the PMC analysis, they'll be working with their own kind of way that they think about class, which might be more Marxist or more sociological or whatever. And then they usually focus on an affect or part of the mode of the PMC. And they usually do this because it's an aspect of the PMC's general mode that causes insane amounts of resentment for regular working people. And I am stressing this because so far, two of the radical professors who have public personas on the internet, um, Daniel Tutt and uh, Matthew Flissfader, both of them early into talking with me or exchanging with me publicly about the PMC and saying that it's not a concept that they would subscribe to or use or whatever. Um, both of them in their own way said it fosters resentment. Tut basically said it hides a disavowed resentment and Fisfader said that it fosters resentment in the like populist resentment. Um, so I wanna take that seriously and take that seriously in the context of everything that's been said so far. When an author like Catherine Liu writes Virtue Hoarders and is basically critiquing virtue signaling and the fact that people talking about their special diets and their workout routines and their mindfulness meditations and their how they do pronoun, you know, how they talk about their pronouns and how they how they think about how they hold space and center and blah, blah, blah. The whole thing is something that requires a lot of time and energy and usually an educational pedigree that has built up a sort of PMC common sense. And yeah, it's all done under the auspices of this is for the good of everybody. But for her, she's saying, yeah, it's virtue hoarding. You guys are trying to make yourself special and feel like you deserve your special status. But one of the affects she goes after is tolerance and niceness, this kind of liberal tolerance, and this liberal niceness. She fucking hates it. Catherine Lou's like, fuck that shit. She says it like in the introduction to Virtue Horror. She's like, I, she's like, no. <laughs> and we'll be reading her conclusion on the last week, the conclusion of Virtue Hoarders. I do think that it's a book worth picking up and reading on your own. But um, the reason I brought this up as an example is because all of these authors focus on their things. And I think that all of these different aspects of the PMC mode need to be sort of brought together. And so that's a task I'm putting on all of you to think about. And it's one that I'm gonna be thinking a lot about as well, which is if for her, it's this niceness and tolerance and, and, and virtue hoarding, well, then what is it for Thomas Frank? For Thomas Frank, who's basically, when he writes, listen, liberal, he's writing this uh, before Donald Trump 
had one in 2016. He's writing this um, where the last progressive uh, was uh, President Barack Obama. And so he's kind of reflecting on a lot of the failures there. For him, it's meritocracy, which is this sense of, well, there's mainly two things I think that we can tease out from that reading. The sense of entitlement and deservingness, the, the sense that we're here in these professions because we're the good ones. We're made of a special stuff. And it's on everyone else to listen to us, to take our advice, to listen to our prescriptions. Um, so that's an aspect of it. But what this does is it creates a situation where inequality is seen as a problem of some people who would have been in the ascendancy of the PMC didn't make it because they were they didn't have access to the right education. And so education then gets formulated as the grand solution to all of our ills, which obviously education is great, but not everybody can go to college. There are jobs that just some people need to do. And there are legitimate reasons that some people do not go to college. There's a lot of legitimate reasons. Some people don't go, don't go to college. And so I'm, I'm gonna read a couple of quotes by him and then tie this back and then I'll close out. But is there something that you wanted to add, Elton? Uh, I actually, I apologize. I need to drop off, but I, I keep oh. going. Are we way over time? We're a bit past, but. Okay, I don't wanna go way over. Okay, um, I'm gonna say I will read. <sighs> Let me just say it this way, because I don't, I don't wanna go over time. The reason I brought up the fact that med school is way harder than it needs to be is because the professions I was saying are not subject to the dictates of laissez-faire capitalism and, or as he says, unbridled competition in uh, item two of the principles of communism. Okay. Um, so then what are the professions? Um, they are not just like this, oh, virtue hoarding and meritocracy. No, those are factors that these authors will talk about, but also this sort of idea of like a return to the Gilded Age, which is to say people who all belong to a profession, a sort of artificial peer group, but it's a peer group formed around specialization and expertise around some kind of knowledge. They don't want to be subject to the whims of capital to the degree that, oh, fuck, of course they don't. Right? They want to be able to do their profession in a distinguished way. They want recognition. They want prestige. They want appreciation. They want to be able to live a fulfilled life doing what they love and doing what they're good at. And no one can blame them for that. But the point is, is that they are now in a different position because the artificial scarcity that is created through regulation measures that make it so that med school in its standardized testing forces you to go through all of these arbitrary things that have very little to do with what you will actually be doing in the hospital. Okay. And so I will leave off on a question. And it is the question that Thomas Frank asks that I think is probably the most important one. And then we'll say bye to Elton. And then I'll open this up for conversation for maybe like 20 to 30 minutes. We'll see about that. 
And that is this question. Has a political ideology, professionalism carries enormous potential for mischief. For starters, it is obviously an inherently undemocratic, prioritizing the views of experts over those of the public. That is tolerable to a certain degree. No one really objects to rules mandating that only trained pilots fly jetliners, for example. But here's the question. But what happens when an entire category of experts stop thinking of itself as social trustees? What happens when they abuse their monopoly power? What happens when they start looking mainly after their own interests, which is to say, start acting as a class? Uh, that's not the quite the part that I'm looking for is this other part right here. He says, what difference does it make if the driving force behind democratic victory comes from below or from on high? Put in a different way, what does it mean when the dominant constituency of the left party in a two-party system is in a high status group rather than the traditional working class? So that's what I want everyone to think about over the next week. And I hope that you will all get around to actually reading the excerpts on the syllabus for yourselves. But if you don't, the assisted exegetical audiobook excerpt readings are available on my YouTube channel. So anyway, thank you, everybody. That's it. This is great. Yeah, I'm, thank you. I'm excited for, for next time. Yeah, and I'll be paying attention to the discussion as well. I think it'll be good. As in you'll tune into this after the fact and listen uh, to it. Meaning on the, on the message board and, and, um, and then, of course, yeah, I'll be paying attention as well. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye, Elton. Bye. Okay. All right, folks. I want uh, anybody who really wants an opportunity to join in here before we close out to take that opportunity. But I also really want to encourage people to think about things and then uh, bring them up in the forum because I'm hoping to see a little bit more action on the forum for this class. Cool. Anybody have anything? Andrew, I know you had your hand raised. You still there? Swole, you there? Anne? Hello, is anyone there? Yeah, I'm uh, here. One thing, Eamon, uh, to Canera in the chat on YouTube, who said, where's the reading material? The answer to that question is, uh, just reach out to me at theoryplebe at gmail.com or go to theory-underground.com. Uh, the problem with giving, okay, it's a syllabus. I can share with you the link if you email me, uh, but the syllabus for the course, if you want to sign up and enroll properly, uh, can be signed up for at the website. And uh, I always say as well that we don't want finances blocking your access. And so if you're totally broke, but you still want to be involved, just reach out to me, email me, let me know. We'll see what we can do. But um, yeah, I definitely want to at least get you access to the reading materials. What's up, Eamon? <laughs> uh, good, good chat. Good discussion today. Cool, man. And you're no, probably... Sorry? I was going to say you're probably the most traditional Marxist here. And so I, I, I had to hold myself back from just talking to you because it's like, 
<laughs> what were you gonna say about Elton's talk though? Uh, it was good. I was doing the work. I was doing work on my end the whole time, so I was trying to like catch what I could. Um, but it was really good. I liked uh, the idea. You know, he's talking about um, how the PMC is like positioned. At, um, in opposition to the working class and like their existence actually makes them worse off or makes workers worse off. Um, um, aside from the kind of normal difference where you say, you know, it's intellectual work versus like labor. Um, and that, um, yeah, I mean, it's like the clarity thing, like the PMC is uh, fundamentally there to reproduce the ideology uh and of the of the ruling class and at the same time manage the working the workers for for the ruling class um now i now i and so like from my perspective i think i would like to one day introduce you know um pmc to uh to the international Marxist tendency as something useful to us to understand. Um, but so I, I know like the common retort to something to, uh, to, to this idea is to say, oh fuck, I just had it. The common retort, if you were to bring it up in the IMT, for instance. Yeah, yeah, fuck, I just had it. <laughs> what the hell? Swole brain go dum dum. Well, swole brain go dum dum. Um, Dude, I feel, yeah, I lost my thread like twice in that uh, in the lecture portion, and uh, like the whole thing with nursing, I was bringing that around, and then I ended up losing it, and then I had to bring it back later. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so hey, here's what I would say then, as far as as far as this goes. Um, so I'm, you know, whether you're able to look, I want you to be able to participate. I want you to be able to think about this. I know that it's something that you will, you will want to be able to have a principled conversation about with your people at the IMT. And so what I would say is that uh, outside of the fact that we'll be talking individually, you're also welcome on the forum. And I'm hoping that we can really draw together in the most succinct way possible, the main ways that this functions materially and ideologically. And, um, the, and when I say materially, I mean in terms of the objective antagonisms and the objectively different material relations. Um, but the one thing I would just bring up from Fear of Falling that um, didn't get brought up was that I think she says at some point in that book, you're probably middle class if your body doesn't hurt at the end of the day. And obviously, like you can you can have some aches sitting in in an office. And we don't want to act like, you know, office work isn't the most soul-sucking and 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 life-ruining thing ever. I mean, it is. But the point is, is like there's hard labor. And that hasn't gone away 
And it's pretty easy for people to act like it has just gone away or like it's being done by people who really couldn't do anything else. So anyway. True. Have you come, have you come back to it yet? No, I'm still looking for it. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. Um, I'll say a couple of things about the syllabus and well, if you remember, then go for it. And then everyone else in the conversation, uh, we'll see you in the forums, but also go ahead and chime in if you want to, while I'm going over the syllabus really quick. There's just a couple of things I want to say about it. Um, and that is that it is structured. I have actually put my ducks in a row. I want you to actually look it over. It's linked on the forum. It's also in the actual course. Um, it's something that you can always message me directly for. It's got all the links for everything you could possibly need in this course. And if it doesn't, then I'll add that because it's a living document that can be refined. And so the, uh, the, the setup goes schedule, weekly assignments, final assignment, resources. And I'm just going to run through a couple of things really quick. I put the syllabus talk at the end because in an actual university setting, spending syllabus day just talking about the syllabus stuff is so fucking boring. But the main thing is you get set up with the website. You got to register uh, a, an account. Put a profile picture on it for the love of God because this is not like anonymous on Twitter or something. This is like, come on, these are, you know, we're trying to talk here. And so you put your face on the profile picture, I implore you. And um, you're not forced to engage on the forum and you're not forced to do any assignments. And uh, there are people who signed up for this course who are working class and busy and not able to do any of those things, but nevertheless enrolled because they wanted direct access to these conversations. And so, cool, you know, welcome. And you don't have to do those things. But also, obviously, it's beneficial. It's beneficial to read. It's beneficial to reflect on the reading through writing and then to have a conversation that's based in some shared readings. That's not just beneficial. It's something that I've craved so much. I started Theory Underground. I've tried it for like a decade. I tried it in the university. I tried it outside of the university. I tried it in a variety of contexts. It's something that I care passionately about and that I really hope takes off. I hope that we'll be able to have really good constructive conversations that are based in first having read and then having reflected on and written about these things for ourselves and also in the forum. So if you want to participate in that stuff, you're definitely welcome to. That goes for you as well, Swole. Um, the PMC course uh, is going to have a different discussion every other week. So the week one discussion will be begun anytime someone wants to put the first reflection up in the forum. And then everyone else just put your reflections as a reply to that person's reflection so that we can keep them all in one place. That way it will be nice and tidy and people are able to do sub replies within that. Okay. And for those who haven't looked at the forum, it's basically like Facebook in its structure, uh, except that it also, imagine if Facebook had integrated something more like forums from back in the day with the internet before it got ruined. And I say that because it got ruined. It got ruined because attention grabby bullshit became the purpose. 
Um, so forums are what existed when it was just like coding people wanting to have conversations, okay? And Discord is what comes along for gamers who are perpetually distracted, who spend all day glued to their phones, right? Like Discord is made for the most distracted kind of mind imaginable. And for someone who's got ADHD, it's not good for you, okay? And the forum is meant to be a cool down. If, uh, if, uh, if Discord heats things up, then, Discord, then the forum cools things down. And that's, that's the goal here because you can't have intellectual conversation in a place that's too fucking tension grabby all the time. You gonna say something, Swole? Yeah, I figured it out. Okay, well, well yeah, well, well, what was it? Okay, so uh, yeah, the, 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 there's a few critiques, but like I think the, the best one they have, um, and I think this is one Varn sort of shares, is that it's like, uh, it, it's a distraction from the actual kind of giants of capitalism from the from the bosses right um and, and varn talks about how like these days people don't even people don't even really understand they never encounter a re the real capitalist like they, they 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 see the elon musk and, and the celebrity capitalists but like the the people who actually run you know global capitalism we never hear hear from them they their lives are completely alien to, to us we will never meet them We'll never see them, um, and uh, and like you know, the folks in in fight back in the IMT would would say, you know, we need to focus. We need to have our focus on the bosses and the, and the contradiction between uh, you know their interests and the, and the workers. It's too easy to get lost in PMC critique. Um, it's really fun. I love it. <laughs> I love you know shitting on the left, um, uh, but that 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 uh, they can turn you into uh, you know, an ultra leftist or a post leftist basically. But it's not just the left. But okay, fair enough. Yeah. So your concern that would be, or you're saying that the concern that you expect would be raised by the IMT is just generally speaking this Varn one that it is a distraction. Okay. Um, rather than it's like what what could be gained from this if like if the if the uh, you know the real enemy is the bosses and if it's in you know the head of the IMF and World Bank and the and you know Coke and Pepsi and you know, Exxon Mobil, et cetera. Right. Well, and to a, there's a lot of bleed over between the PMC and these capitalists when we're talking about the top of the PMC, right? Like really when we're talking about some activist who comes from suburban America or whose values and worldview and assumptions are generally coming from this idea of middle suburban suburbanism, uh, that's loud. Your uh, microphone is loud. Um, the cons yeah. So, what was I saying before? It sorry. Um, I think what I'm going to do actually is just I have I have a lot of thoughts and I could talk forever and I don't want to. Uh, I I do want to, but I, I, for the sake of brevity, I don't want this to be too intimidating of a stream. I definitely want to have this over in seven minutes. And so what I'm going to say is that is one of the most important questions if we are trying to talk to Marxists. Absolutely. Next time in two weeks from today is going to be the lecture that is a lot more engaged with the Marxists. This was more of a with the liberals, even though I did get into Marx and Engels a bit. And so what I would say is 
also because my job is not to convince anybody that this is like the solution, but I want people while they are here, while they're committed to doing these excerpts and getting a sort of basis in the conversation to just take it seriously as a problem. And so if it's fun to dunk on PMCs, um, then I hope that people will also allow themselves a little bit of enjoyment actually getting a basis in the conversation. Because I don't get the impression that most of these people who think that it's just a way of dunking on the left, like Varn, actually read the essay, much less the book, that we will be discussing in two weeks. If they have, then that's great, and we can talk about it later. But for now, as far as we go, as individuals involved in this course, I think that it's incumbent on us all to think for ourselves. And so I'm not going to sit here and tell you what my response is. I've got a few. We can talk about them off the record. And I will definitely write about it because I am working on a chapter or an essay or an article. I haven't figured out what it is, but I am getting my thoughts in order on this topic. And um, I will definitely engage with Varn there, as well as these other people who have engaged with me publicly on the topic so far. Okay, so with all of that said, thank you for that question. I think that's a really good question. It's one that everyone in this course should be thinking about for themselves. Okay, so the weekly assignments are these reflection prompts. I say, please do at least two of the following four things. One, summarize this week's reading with, with key quotations to support your interpretation. Two, reflect on a passage you struggled with or found interesting, which you hope to get some clarification on or see what others think of your interpretation or application. Three, ask a specific question about or offer encouragement on someone else's post. Four, choose a couple of pages to summarize and then ask critical questions about your summary. This is just suggestions. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You don't have to do it. But if you do, you can do two of those four things. You can do four of those four things. But I have a section here said why this is recommended but not forced. <clears throat> Writing is one of the three most important parts of thinking and it always comes after reading in a sort of sense. Reading, writing, and conversation are the three most important exercises of thought, though it is all too common for people to skip steps one and two in a hurry to get to conversation. But conversation without a basis in reading and writing is never going to have the same depth or richness. In fact, it'll probably lead to a lot of bullshitting and talking past one another. Because we want to better ourselves, we try to do weekly reflection assignments that will hopefully help better understand the text. These weekly assignments also prepare you for your final assignment, which we will talk about next. However, if you are too busy, we do not want time energy saltification to bar your ability to participate in the course. That is why it is not forced or enforced, simply recommended. And I would only add to that, there's the other thing about uh, reading. Anything worth rereading is, anything worth reading is worth rereading, unless it's like a, I don't, in almost every case, you're not going to get it on the first pass. And you're going to spend a lot of time stressing out and going back over sections if you tell yourself you have to get it all on the first reading. So what I encourage you to do is to treat all of the readings in this like a first reading or me reading it aloud on my channel. Treat that like a first reading and then go back over it. And the, the, the thing that we've been saying a lot is that Anything worth reading is worth rereading. And there's really three readings that you should do before you say, I read it. I really read it. And the first one is reading it to get the, the lay of the land. 
The second time is reading it to where you could like put it in your own words. That might include like Mikey, line by line analysis, right? Where you actually put it in your own words as you go. That's the dream if you really have the time and energy. And then um, the third reading is running it up against everything else you know, comparing it to other thinkers. Um, yeah, saying, well, how does this how does this compare to this other thinker? Okay, the problem with comparing it to everything else you know, uh, without having done the first two readings, is that this is almost guaranteed to be a bunch of bullshit. It's just not. You're going to spend a lot of time focused on trivial, trivial aspects of the reading. You're going to misunderstand things. And look misunderstanding, creative misinterpretation. This is all hardwired into the process, right? We're all different. We all bring different experiences and interpret things differently, whatever. But I am saying that in the same way that people want to skip the reading and then the writing and go straight to conversation, they also want to skip the first reading and the second reading and get straight to the third one that compares it to everything else that they know, okay? Which is usually where you get critical. I'm asking everyone to take on the challenge of trying to do these excerpts multiple times and to care more about understanding what they're saying and why they might be saying it than critiquing them until the final project. And that's the next part of the syllabus, which is just to say, if you write it like an article, if you write it like an essay, it's something that could be published in the future uh, with Theory Underground. There's no promises on that because we really have no idea, but there's a possibility of getting published. Um, other kinds of final projects you could do is start a YouTube channel and do your own reading it aloud and interpreting it as you go on your third reading. Uh, start a podcast, make a video essay. There's a variety of multimedia approaches that you might find more interesting than a standard college essay or you know theory article and if that's what you're interested in we don't want to be like schooling has uh probably been for a lot of you which is to say suffocate your actual interests and try to force you to focus on things you're not interested in or meet arbitrary deadlines and do bullshit tasks that's not the goal here the goal is if you're here for the right reason to help you in whatever way we can okay and whatever you do with that is what you do with that. And that's on you. And we support it. We hope the best. Okay. Last things. Look at the syllabus for yourself. I, I can't read the whole thing to you, for you. But um, in resources, you see right here, these hyperlinks, fear of falling excerpt. Click on that. You'll, you'll pull up the PDF excerpt. You'll be able to read it for yourself. But you see this other link right here. It says this playlist here. That's where you can listen to it. It's, uh, it's on a playlist of stuff that is all related to this course. So I just pulled it up on the YouTube side of things. You should be able to see it. We've got a lot of things going on so far over here. And the last thing I'm going to say is that uh, if you want to support this work and you want to make a one-time donation or a regular donation or buy my book or buy a course or in the future, see other courses uh, or uh, books that will be published on the website, you go to theory-underground.com forward slash support. And that's where you'll pull that up. And I think I added a button there today that makes it so that if none of the options here seem satisfactory, 
you can always just donate via PayPal, whatever you think is manageable and conveys uh, your relative level of um, excitement or support for what is going on here, okay? With that, I will just ask, is anybody wanting to say anything before I close this out or are we done here? We're done here. All right, everybody, seriously, thank you for joining. Have a great rest of your day. Adios. We're still in the Zoom chat, but we're not live streaming. Hi. Hi. Look at who I found, everybody. <gasps> Is anyone even still there? Let's see, who's here? Sabine. Sabine. Oh, Sabine, are you there by any chance? Uh, I think Sabine's the only person remaining besides Anne, who's, that's Anne. Sabine, are you there? Today. I think that uh, Sabine is probably away right now. Okay, Let me uh, figure out how to end the recording. <laughs>